Welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. And my name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. This is the show where we explore the many glamorous and scandalous aspects of consumer startup culture and explore whatever are relevant topics and kind of be a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to build a, a successful business in the consumer landscape. Really excited about today's episode. We have a guest that we've been excited about for quite some time. So much to dig into. So I want to give a big warm welcome to Greg Renfrew, the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter, one of my favorite companies on the West Coast. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Before we jump in, would you mind giving a bit of background on Beauty Counter and who you are? Okay. Who am I? Um, That's a good question. So my name is Greg Renfrew and I am a... Let's see. I am a wife, a mother of three, and the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter. I am based in Los Angeles, California, but I am a New Yorker at heart. That's my my hometown is New York City. I have been really focused on and impassioned with the environmental health movement for the past decade or so. And I started Beauty Counter to build not only a direct-to-consumer brand, but also a movement for cleaner, safer products for all. And, you know, this is, this has been the past decade, you know, I was just meeting with uh, one of our associates and I was just saying the past decade has been just an incredible um, learning, like one great learning experience for me, I think, trying to build a movement, trying to change an industry and also trying to manage my life has been, has been a lot. I think it is for everyone. So that's a little bit about me. Happy to tell you all more. We were both big fans of the company that you built, especially around the mission of, of changing the beauty industry to make it healthier and safer for consumers. Why aren't other people doing this? Or are other people doing this? And if not, why aren't more companies focused on this? There are certainly other companies that are focused on the clean beauty movement. I think the, to answer your first question, why aren't companies doing this? I don't, I don't know the honest answer. I can tell you that there are a number of factors that I think play into the lack of initiative around making products cleaner and safer. I think a lot of it has to, it comes down to you have the capital markets, the demand of companies that they increase shareholder value at all times. You have formulas that date back many decades in skincare, color cosmetic, personal care products that were formulated originally with chemicals that are now considered to be chemicals of concern that at the time were thought to be safe. But given that we've introduced over 85,000 chemicals into commerce over the last you know, number of decades since World War II and haven't tested you know, 90% of these for safety, people started formulating with chemicals that we now know are linked to significant health issues. And so it presents companies with a very a major PR issue, a major margin issue, a major hit to stakeholder or shareholder value. And, and we all know that people don't really like change either. So you put all those things together and it makes it difficult for people to change the status quo. So w- one of the things that we focus on on this show specifically, I mean, there's so many places we could go with somebody like you, but the thing that we really like to focus on is the culture of startups and sort of the through lines between company to company to company and why they do what they do. And one of the things I think is most compelling about Beauty Counter is it's a company built around a mission. We see this a lot in startups. 
it's become a fad. For sure. Can you speak a little bit to, I'm fascinated by this in a couple of ways. Let me give you a little bit of background. I spent four years working at Warby Parker, was part of the kind of do good movement as it pertains to marketing your business model or marketing your mission, right? One of the things that I loved about Beauty Counter and what you guys did is it felt like the company wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the mission. And I don't think that's the case for a lot of other businesses. And so can you speak a little bit to Beauty Counter's relationship to your mission in the sense of marketing your business model or marketing your mission? We are, I'm asking the question because I think for you guys, it's authentic and it's actually what you built the business on top of rather than something you decided to add on as a way to appear more ethical. Um, I think that you're absolutely right. You know, prior to, so if you go back maybe 15 years or so, or even 20 years ago, there was this whole cause marketing movement that people became obsessed with what was their philanthropic you know side of their business but it wasn't necessarily authentic to the core of the business i think for me the honest truth is that i started beauty counter as a woman who didn't really in general give a shit about beauty products i never wore much makeup i still don't wear a lot i was never if you gave me a hundred dollars i was always going to spend it on clothing the reason I started Beauty Counter was because, and I've said this publicly a million times, I don't think the world needed another beauty brand. What they needed was someone and a company that was going to actually force change in an industry that I thought was incredibly antiquated. I for sure saw business opportunity. I saw there was an enormous white space around you know, the idea or the notion of clean beauty, creating products that drove not only performance but safety simultaneously. But for me, it wasn't about adding on something to a business that was doing good. It was the business. And, you know, I've always felt that I'm not a religious person at all, but I always felt it was almost like a calling that I was armed with information. I watched so many people I know. So many of my friends were diagnosed with different types of cancer, you know, in their 30s, some of whom lost their battles with cancer, women and men. I had so many friends giving birth to kids with significant health issues or struggling with fertility. I watched so many people have, you know, getting sick. I watched what was going on with the environment and I started to connect the dots. And when I realized that we were being exposed to toxic chemicals in a lot of areas of our life in the air that we breathe in the furniture we sit on in our, you know, whatever vinyl shower curtains, you name it, there are toxic chemicals. But knowing that I was able to make a lot of changes in my life when it came to other parts of my life, like household cleaning products, or I could, switch from plastic to glass, but when it came to skincare, personal care products, there genuinely weren't any products that met my needs. I wanted products that worked and I wanted them to be safe for my health. And I thought, you know, we need to do something about this, which is why I started Beauty Counter to be not only a brand, but also a movement. So from the beginning, you know, our advocacy efforts to try to affect change in Washington and also on the state level were part and parcel to everything that we did. And we had to choose investors wisely because it wasn't something that was off to the side, it was it was everything to me and, and us. I wouldn't be getting out of bed in the way that I do every single morning if I didn't think that this really mattered. It's just too hard. And what's interesting is you don't actually have to do this, right? You know, this is not something that is imperative to the success of your business necessarily, or it wasn't necessarily early on, right? I don't think that you probably saw, uh, one of the questions we have is to ask you about your never list and the idea of self-regulation. The fact that there isn't a current national mechanism for regulating the beauty industry, so you took it upon yourself to do so, and that's a big part of the identity of your business. It seems like you have gone many steps past what one would expect from a consumer brand to actually affect change. 
So when I say you didn't actually need to do this, I mean, you could have done a really beautiful marketing campaign and built a brand around the identity of regulating the beauty industry. The Neverlist is a good example of that. We'll never use these products, but you have relationships in Washington. I've watched the video of you testifying in front of Congress. Can you speak a bit to that process in the early days when you first wanted to establish a connection with Washington and you first wanted to understand who was actually making the decisions on what was regulated and what wasn't in your industry. How does one go about actually connecting with somebody in Washington and why was that so important to you beyond the obvious? I, you know, I was saying that I love the, the notion of this being like business school because I have guest lectured at, at a bunch of business schools over the years. And I think that people always think that you start a business with the answers, but the reality is the situation for most entrepreneurs is your greatest strength is knowing what you know and what you don't know because no one knows anything about what they're doing when they're starting a new business. Like you're, you're forging a new path that hasn't been forged before. I mean, that's sort of the very spirit of entrepreneurism in, in so many ways. So I think for me, it was, I didn't come from Washington. I don't have a political background. I didn't really have any connections into DC except for friends that have you know, worked there from time to time. But I did know that, that creating a business and creating a brand wasn't enough because at the end of the day, no matter how great our products are, no matter how accessible they are or are not from a price point standpoint, point, there was no way we were going to be able to physically touch the lives of every single American. And so knowing that I started to, you know, call on people one by one to say, okay, how does this decision-making process happen? You know, who, what are the committees or who are, who's on the committees that would actually affect change in Washington with respect to something like cosmetic reform. And I started literally calling green chemists, environmental health activists, friends who ran nonprofit organizations, friends who happened to live in DC. And, you know, it ultimately led me to finding the right people and bringing on, you know, for example, Lindsay Dahl, who runs Mission for Us, who had come out of Washington, who understood the lay of the land there, that understood the differences between working with the Democrats and the Republicans the House side, the Senate side. I mean, none of that. It was all, even the nomenclature, like I didn't know any of it before, except for, you know, whatever I studied in like the U.S. Constitution, you know, eighth grade history or something. So I think it was really about, one, getting investors on board from the beginning that knew I was going to fight all the way to Washington. Two, was picking up the phone and calling unapologetically leaning on anyone and everyone that I could find that could help me understand how one would begin to navigate the landscape of Washington. And then it was starting to have meetings from the earliest days when people weren't really talking about the need for cosmetic reform, didn't really understand that there were product or chemicals of concern and product and starting to have meetings with people whose eyes glazed over the minute we walked in who were mostly men who said, I don't wear beauty products. And, you know, that was the end of that conversation. Now, you know, seven and a half years later, people listen to us and they, they recognize that there's a need for change. You testified in front of Congress in 2019 on the importance of oversight in the beauty industry. What was that like from an, an emotional perspective? Also, just like logistically, like how do you approach that? What were you thinking and what was that experience like to go through? You know, I think it was when we first were being interviewed because they interviewed some people, they were choosing who they wanted to have testify you know, at first I thought, well, of course they have to ask us. Like we have been, we've been leading this charge forever. We are the most vocal company uh, in the United States on the need for cosmetic reform. Then when they chose me and chose us, I thought, 
shit, like you're not going to go into, to go to Washington. And, and, you know, but there's a difference in working, walking in a meeting with a member of Congress in their offices. It's another thing to be actually testifying. And if you watched my video, which some of you said you did, that um, Phineas said that he did, you know, I literally stumbled over my own name. I mean, I literally said, my name is Greg, you know, I couldn't even say Renfrew properly. I felt it was both an honor and also an enormous responsibility. I feel that because I represent, I was the only person to represent our entire industry. And because Beauty Counter has been built on a community of both our corporate team members, our, you know, our shareholders and our community of independent consultants, you know, 60,000 families across North America, I felt like I couldn't let everyone down. And so I was pretty nervous and pretty stressed. Once I got in there, I, you know, remembered how <laughs> patronizing certain people can be and how, how funny it is to be in Washington where people talk to each other in this really, you know, nice sort of sickly sweet way, but they're actually, you know, going at one another. And so once I got going, I was fine. But the first minute or so, I was, I was super nervous. I know the answer is no, but would more regulation remove your competitive advantage? Yeah. What if the never list became law? Yeah. Well, first of all, if the never list becomes law, then I've done my job. At the end of the day, we all know that we've built a successful company and that in the corporate world, the end game is always about money, right? It's always about how much money did you make? You know, what was the IPO price, the shareholder price, the sale price? But at the end of the day, again, as a business that is truly authentic to its mission, if we change the laws, we've done a great job. We just had a huge win in California where there were two laws passed for the first time in 82 years that one require companies to list allergens and fragrance and, and, you know, having someone, you know, make you uh, disclose allergens is a huge step forward. And also um, another act where Governor Newsom required them to remove the 12 most toxic chemicals or most commonly used toxic chemicals by 2025. So to answer your question, we welcome cosmetic reform. Might it take some of our competitive advantage off? Sure. But as a company that prides itself as being a disruptor and an innovator, my job is to, to look one, three, five, and 10 steps ahead of where everyone's going. And having a restricted ingredient list like our never list is only dipping your toe in the water of what it means totally. to be holistically clean. So that's the first frontier. I hope everyone does that. But beyond that, there's so much more work to be done. Well, and you're a mechanism that knows how to affect change, actually, at scale, which is something that probably took you many years to get to, right? And if and when that never list becomes law, no business, no for-profit company will be in a better position to move on to the next thing that makes our world cleaner and safer. So that's, I think, another really interesting thing is you're also, while you're simultaneously building a for-profit company, you're also building an apparatus and a mechanism and a foundation that can be directed wherever is most valuable, right? That's actually, it's interesting. We have a very different business from you altogether, but in that particular point, we could not be more similar. And the people say like, oh, can't somebody knock off a modular sofa that gets shipped in the mail? And we're like, yeah, they can. But by the time they do that, we'll have solved seven other problems in the furniture industry. And if somebody can successfully trail us every single step of the way, like then they're really good at copying people really fast. And also that's not a bad thing because consumers win then. But our brand identity is in solving those problems and being innovative and, and improving people's lives. It's not in creating the best modular sofa. And for you, it's not just like the first thing you did, the first act. It's like, we're bigger than that. We're going to keep solving problems. You know, I always say to people, and it was something that I learned in my very first real job, which is never 
speak disparagingly about your competitive set, spend your time focusing on being the best and speaking to the merits of what you bring to the table, not what other people don't or how you're better, but just, just do a really good job. And I, and I still believe today that that is, is a really, you know, it's a good way to think about, you know, building your own business. I do think one of the things that has probably diluted our competitive advantage and is frustrating to me to be completely transparent is that there are big box retail chains that have created a definition of clean and oftentimes it suits their needs because they represent so many brands that they don't want to alienate others. And that's a very watered down version of clean. And so what's disappointing about that is it isn't necessarily protecting the consumer as much as we would like. And yet it's put a definition out there that people are now living by that makes them think that their clean is as safe as our clean. And that, that can be disappointing when you see that because you think, well, it should be so much more for the consumer. Yeah, that's very frustrating. I've I had uh, some very interesting conversations with the founders of Casper early on about, and I was like, you know, there's been literally dozens of companies that have copied you. Does it bother you? And they're like, oh, most of them no. Like, I think they're trying to achieve the same thing as us. There's a handful that we think are complete bullshit, and we hate them because like they're ripping off what we're doing. They're stealing other people's designs. They're actually not solving the problems. They're just marketing that they are, and you know. It, different stakes. I think you're, you're actually doing things that are better for people's health, but it's just always interesting to see like who people respect and don't respect in the competitive landscape. And it's frustrating. Yeah. I look, I think that they always say, what is it? Imitation is the best form of, you know, the most flattering, the best form of flattery, whatever that saying is, I'm not getting it quite right. But what does surprise me about business in general, across the board, is that when you have someone that is the disruptor and then you have someone that's following that leader and, and mimicking whatever they're doing, I always wonder when you when you get up in the morning and you go to work, would it be more fun to come up with your own ideas? Wouldn't it be more fun to think about how you could do things differently? You know, take things that have been done well before and then reinvent. There was a great book years ago called Blue Ocean Strategy, which is all about you can take an existing industry like wine and then come up with Tuvok Chuck or Cirque du Soleil versus Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. To me, that would be a much more compelling way to, to build my business than to go and take the marketing materials from someone else and then plop it on someone's desk and say, make it just like that. I, I don't understand that because it just seems also just really boring. And how do you, when you go home at the end of the day, do you feel that you've done a job well, that you are excited about the time that you've spent on solving a problem? I like the fact that when I've started something, when I think of something new, I'm always looking for how to improve our company, but also where are the opportunities to innovate and how do you do things differently than they've been done before to meet the ever-changing needs of the consumer or to use your brain or to have a little more fun? I mean, you've spent so much time working, you might as well have fun and you might as well use your brain. So I, I that I didn't, can never understand, but yeah, you know. no, you're 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 so right, and I think the proof is in who are your competitors that you look up to and learn from and respect to some extent, and and who are the ones that you're like how do you sleep at night? You know what I mean? And I, for me, at least, I feel like I'm binary. There's, there's very few people that fall in the middle. It's, it's either like, I respect what you're doing. I hate that we're, you know, competing on this, whatever, but at least I respect that you have your own ideas and approach. Like you said, you're trying to solve new problems and do things in a different way. And maybe we make each other better versus someone who's like, I'm going to just completely replicate what you're doing and try to steal some of your market share because I think I can. For sure. And you know, I feel like there are companies that theoretically people think that we play in their space because they sell skincare or because they work with independent consultants. And some of those companies 
are so generous with their time and their information. I mean, I just literally was having an issue two days ago and I called the CEO of Rodan and Fields who which is a direct selling company, enormously successful. Sometimes people will compare things that we've done and they've done. And I, you know, I literally, she picked up the phone two seconds later, texted me right back, gave me all of this proprietary information. And it was done in two minutes. And that's the kind of relationship I like to have with other leaders, even if they're in the beauty space, like we can make each other better. And so I don't really understand when people won't help one another. I, I think we're, there's strength in numbers and I think that everyone, there's enough business to be had in industries like beauty or furniture or you know, whatever, accessories or fashion, whatever. There's so much business out there. There are trillions of dollars are being spent. We can all win. We just don't have to take each other down in doing so. Absolutely. So on the show, we talk a lot about business model. We've done a couple episodes that, that focus on business model. Obviously, the one that dominates the world of consumer products and certainly the ones that we talk about, and obviously with Burroughs business model and my background are the same, you know, is direct consumer, e-commerce, vertically integrated, born online. Can you explain how your business model is integrated between direct consumer and your consultant's model, which to me is, I think, a really clear innovation that, again, doesn't seem to be something that is replicated at scale with companies that would consider themselves a consumer brand or a direct consumer brand, certainly. I think that, first of all, I started Beauty Counter with a mission of getting safer products into people's hands. And in order to do that, the first thing that we needed to do was to tell stories. The story that we were telling at the time was the need for safe ingredients and to arm people with information so that they can make better and more informed choices. You can't do better if you don't know what you're trying to, you know, what you're trying to achieve or you're not armed with information. So when I thought about that, going back to a question you all asked earlier about why hasn't the industry changed, I knew that the large incumbents, the you know, multinational beauty conglomerates were not going to be very excited early on with us telling the story of the need for safer ingredients because it went right, right against everything that they have done and they controlled all of the shelf space. So I knew we needed to tell stories. I also knew that the entire world was shifting away from traditional retail and traditional distribution of, of beauty products specifically through traditional retail channels, you know, department stores were waning. I knew they were almost over. Even specialty stores, in my opinion, had, had hit their prime and were coming probably on the other side of that. And so I knew we needed to, to connect directly with consumers to tell stories and to build relationships. A, a friend of mine asked me, you know, about the, the notion of selling through independent consultants through a direct selling model, to which I immediately said, hell no, because my experience with those types of companies, of which I had very little, was those companies overpromised and underdelivered. They weren't building true consumer brands. They, they were selling a business opportunity versus a product, and none of that I wanted anything to do with. But when I, when I peeked beneath the hood, I thought there's some parts of this business model that are extremely compelling. And how do we take the best-in-class attributes of that model and then marry it to traditional retail and e-commerce to create a new direct-to-consumer multifaceted you know, brand proposition for the consumer? How do we use multiple channels and their inherent strengths to drive traffic to one another and to help the consumer, you know, shop the brand the way, the way in which he or she wants to. And that's exactly what we did with Beauty Counter. And so, you know, we have a community of independent consultants who are advocates for our mission, who are educators and who use commerce as an engine for change and have built successful businesses on our platform. And success can be defined as 
in many ways. Some have tiny, tiny businesses, some have larger ones, but, but they are really actively um, trying to help us move the needle forward with uh, the mission and the business. Simultaneously, though, people are shopping our brands you know, online, you know, through beautycounter.com, they're, they're going to our stores, they're going to our strategic partnerships, like right now we're enjoying one with Sephora, we've had them before with Target, we have Goop, and so we've been able to integrate those channels in a way that feels cohesive and that's supportive, and we do believe that as the tide rises, all ship sales, and the women and men who've decided to join as, in our community of consultants, knew from day one they were joining a business that was going to be different than other businesses, and that we believe that the consumer the end client is the one that gets to, to dictate everything. And he, he and she and or she, they don't want to shop brands through single channels anymore. It just doesn't work. So it's worked. It's been different. It's hard at times. But I actually think it's, it's what it's allowed us to scale. It's allowed us to build this movement. And everyone seems to be, for the most part, pretty happy. What's the, what's the split between e-com and, and through the independent consultants? Well, the majority of our, of our acquisition of clients comes through our independent consultants. The majority of our transactions, well, all of our transactions go through bdcounter.com and anything that is purchased through an independent consultant or us goes through bdcounter.com. It goes, you know, immediately shipped out of our warehouse. So it, we operate like a traditional e-commerce business in that way. But the majority of our, of our sale, or sorry, our majority of our acquisition starts with an independent consultant, but very quickly they migrate online because what happens, especially in the beauty industry, is once you're comfortable using a product, then you just sort of go into a replenishment model. And like anything else, they can act like a personal shopper to say, hey, Phineas, I know you really liked this product. We just launched our new vitamin C serum. You should try it. Once you've tried that, you're going, you're going straight to .com. You're not interacting necessarily with the independent consultant. So they work really, really nicely together as a model. A quick follow-up to that. Can you speak to prospective entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs that are evaluating this as a potential model for their business? What should they be wary of? What should they expect? What's the biggest value add for their business? It's a really good question. So I think if I were speaking to an entrepreneur that was considering exploring a community-based model where you have independent business owners on a platform. I think that the thing that I have found to be most interesting about it is that, first of all, the the founder of the company needs to really want to connect with people because at the end of the day, yes, you have a platform upon which people are building businesses and they are joining because they want to be part of meaningful change or they're joining because they're a beauty junkie or they're joining because they want to pay for uh, you know, the mortgage on their home or this or whatever, braces on the kid, or they just want to get out of the house and do something on their own, or they need a little extra money as a side gig for their professional career. So people join for all different types of reasons, but they absolutely want to interact with the founder and they want to understand that the person and the company that they're following are authentic, that they're transparent, that they're accessible. That is a big part of what I do every day is really roll up my sleeves and get out there in the trenches with the troops and help lead them, help them gain confidence to step out of their comfort zones, help them to navigate entrepreneurial endeavors that they hadn't yet contemplated in their life. I mean, there are a lot of first times. And so I think that that is something that you can't just start a business with a community without wanting to really truly participate with your community. If you don't like people and you don't believe in the power of people, if you don't believe in the power of collective voice and you're not you're, and you're looking for a one size fits all type of person, like that's not the business that you're in. If you want to work with people and use their collective voice for meaningful change or to build a successful business, you can absolutely do that. 
but just know you're in the business of people, which in general, I think no matter, no matter what business you're in, you're always in the business of people. But I do think that's one of the complexities. And I think the other thing that people need to think about is that technology is ever-changing and you oftentimes are working with people who are not as technologically savvy. So as that's changing, you've got to, when you pivot your technology or if the world demands that you pivot technology, people don't always pivot quite as quickly. And so that makes it a little bit more complex as well. Who are these independent consultants? What's their profile? Are they the same, different from your customers? And then what's your pitch to them? Like, how do you, how do you recruit more? You've obviously done a, a fantastic job of it. You have over 60,000 of them. What's your secret? Well, first of all, I think my secret, honestly, if you were to ask an independent consultant, a beauty counter, why did they join? They would almost always tell you the truth, which is they joined because of the mission. They want to be part of meaningful change. People want to be part of community. People want to want to use their voice in a way that matters. We all want to be part of something that is bigger than we are as an individual. So that's why they join. Now, they may stay for other reasons. They may stay for economic reasons. They may stay because they've, you know, enjoyed just getting out of the house again or doing whatever, whatever that is for those people. But that's typically why they join. In fact, about 80% of our consultants have never had any type of a sales job in their lives. And they've never been part of an old school direct selling company. These are our professionals. They are lawyers, doctors, nurses, stay at home moms, people who are working at Vogue magazine, people who, you know, you name it, business instructors, massage therapists. I mean, there it's a, it runs the gamut. But they join because of the mission. And I think that that has been what also makes it really interesting. And one of the things I am most proud of is that we have so many different people from so many disparate backgrounds. They find, we find our shared values and we work towards them. And for us, our mission of getting safer products into the hands of everyone is at the forefront of what we all do. We educate and help to arm people with information. We formulate and try to provide immediate solutions through the exchange of products. And we advocate together as a collective voice on the state and federal level, as well as in parliament in, in Canada to change the laws for all people. That's what they're signing up for. And I think that you know, what we've been able to do is bring together a whole bunch of really interesting people who are, by the way, very, they may not be technologically savvy, but they are absolutely proficient in the use of social. They are, they are, they are online, they're building intimate relationships and they're using their, you know, digital influence to, to do good work, good in the world and to earn an income. The women and men who, who represent our brand are not necessarily the people that you would think that they are. And why did they join or what is it, you know, my secret sauce? I don't spend a lot of time selling the business opportunity. It's not, I'm about the mission and the products. We're a product company. I always say that should this be of interest to you and you feel compelled to be part of this change and that, and you want to earn an income while doing good, this would be a platform upon which you can consider you know, the potential of earning, it's never, it's never guaranteed because not everyone will earn. But I don't, I don't like the idea of recruiting. I'm about building, I just, just not what, we're not, a, we're not heavily focused on that as a company. We're really heavily focused on sale products. You as a business, you have a very predictable acquisition cost and you have this like, it's tied into like this incredibly scalable refer a friend program where people earn money off of that. And it's like a, a sales commission model all kind of wrapped up into one. I think, I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you. Why don't more people do this? That's a good question. You know, why don't more people do this? I think that, I think in my industry, in the beauty industry, people don't do this because they have so heavily relied upon department stores and specialty stores and people don't like to step outside of their comfort zones. I think that people don't necessarily understand independent consultants and the businesses around them. So they, they have a perception of, of how this works and they don't necessarily understand it. 
And I do think people are starting to do that. I mean, I look at some of the other brands out there in the beauty industry, you know, like Glossier or whatever, where they are using ambassadors. They might be calling them something different. They may call them ambassadors or, you know, advocates or representatives, whatever they call them. But there are people that are starting to do this. They're just doing it in in a slightly different way. But I do think a lot of people work in the beauty industry with affiliates. It's just, I think that no one's really been focused to my knowledge, on trying to pull all of these channels, like this community of independent consultants, and e-com and retail together into one symbiotic business model. And that's something, you know, because I like to make things difficult, I wanted it all. I wanted that consumer because at the end of the day, it's always about your customer, right? And, and the customer dictates how they shop the brand. And so we always wanted to create an opportunity for people to tell stories and develop build, build businesses. And we also wanted an independent client of the company to come in and shop as he or she prefers. So I don't know the answer exactly, but when you, when you interview some other people and you ask them why, let me know what they say as to why they're not doing it this way themselves. <laughs> Cause I can't speak to why people make the decisions that they do and they don't. One final question for you. There is, as you know, a common critique of your business model. Um, I'm not going to use the word. I'm not even going to going to get into it with you. But I do want to ask this question because I think you are uniquely positioned to advise entrepreneurs on this. You've been asked probably that same question about your business model multiple times. What is your advice to entrepreneurs who have to overcome the same repeated critique or question from investors, the media, annoying podcasters like ourselves? How do you mentally prepare for that and grow and, and, and get better and stronger for having to answer the same critique over and over again? What's the critique? Well, maybe it's not a critique. Maybe you're like, no, that's not a problem at all. But like having independent consultants, people are like, oh, is that a pyramid scheme? Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I, I just watched something that, that was talking about a so-called pyramid scheme. And it's so interesting to me because I think about Bernie Madoff and I think about the greatest pyramid scheme of all was happening in the financial markets with the with sort of the most revered people, right? And the most fancy, prestigious people out there were all part and parcel to this thing that was going on. And somehow no one seems to criticize that. I think that there is truth in that certain companies over the years, as in any industry, have overpromised and underdelivered, have taken it. And when I say overpromised and underdelivered, they either promised for income that is not forthcoming, or they've promised in their products that they can be life-changing in a way that they just won't be. And so I think that is what has given people or those types of companies some of the bad rap. I actually think there are quite a few really honest, good ethical companies out there that unfortunately have to deal with the negative bias against direct selling. I am incredibly confident about what we do. I made a concerted, I, I made a decision to sell through people because I felt that our story was best told person to person. I came from traditional retail and e-commerce and it would have been much easier for me to pick up the phone and call someone at Nordstrom or Neiman's or Sephora and say, I wanna put beauty counter products into shelves across America. But I didn't do that because if you wanna create a movement, you light a fire under the asses of a bunch of women who care deeply about an issue. And I knew that we could do that. And I'm thrilled by the fact that they can actually earn and be part of meaningful change at the same time. So I have every confidence in our business and our business model. I think where people get tripped up is that they don't understand that the same digital influencers that are ultimately revered by everyone are the exact same women and men that are selling products on our platform. They are using YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. They are 
people of note. They are bloggers and they're vloggers and they're people and they're not different people. And somehow I think because of historically, the brands that were built were sort of underground, not consumer facing. People think of people that are independent consultants in one way, but the reality is that they're exact same people that people are actually paying money to interact with in every single beauty brand. And that's the message for the street is that you should take the time to actually understand the business model, to understand the way in which we beauty counter transact because there's a lot of hearsay around the industry with a lot of ignorance as to what's going on with individual companies. And so, you know, I answer the question over and over again because I feel strongly that being an advocate for change in industry and being an advocate for our business model is important because we've been able to prove that we can be successful, that we can do well, and we can do good simultaneously. And I always say to everyone that is an independent consultant with Beauty Counter, don't spend time thinking about what other companies in a traditional direct selling world do, because we really have nothing to do with them. I don't know anything about their business models because I've never really studied them. Think about what we do and think about our peer set. And when I think about our peers, I think of other direct-to-consumer brands that also are powered by people, although in different ways. And our companies like Patagonia or Allbirds or Rothy's or Warby or Ben & Jerry's, companies that are trying to do well, they're trying to do good, and they're using the power of people and a collective voice to move a market to a better place. Investors, listen up. Dig in. Don't be lazy. And entrepreneurs, be confident, focus on yourselves, <laughs> and do what you think is best for your business. Let the results speak for itself. I feel like that's what I took away from that. But that was amazing. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Really, really appreciate you taking the time today. So much to unpack in this episode. Yeah. I just appreciate your insight for both us and our listeners. Let's have you back on again in the future. But thanks so much. That's a wrap. All right. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Class dismissed. are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.